Turn your Bibles this morning, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. As we resume our uh, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and the last time I left off in chapter 24, and I'll give you just a brief summary, just to help you to kind of get caught back up to speed where I left off, and then we'll, in the following weeks, or upcoming weeks, we'll be continuously pursuing the finale of the Gospel of Matthew. I appreciate your patience and I appreciate your deep interest in the words of the Lord. You may recall in chapter 24, Jesus has left the temple for the last time. This is just prior to His crucifixion. In doing so, He is announcing pretty much through a lament upon the people of, of, of Jerusalem, the, the, the nation of Israel, uh, an upcoming impending judgment. In fact, as He and His disciples make their way to the Mount of Olives, a particular place that Jesus oftentimes would retreat to and leave in the city of, of uh, Jerusalem, which is right across the mountain or valley, if you will, from the city of Jerusalem. You have a great vantage point to look down upon the city of Jerusalem from that point, particularly to be able to see the, the, the temple, the temple complex. And, and we're told in Mark's gospel that, and, and Matthew's as well that the disciples are pointing out to Jesus as they're looking at the, the whole temple complex, what a massive construction that is. Lord, have you noticed what magnificent buildings these are? And, and to which Jesus replies something that is truly startling to the disciples there in chapter 24, verse 2. His response was, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that they shall not be thrown down. All of this is going to be destroyed, Jesus says. This startles his disciples. It will shock all the Jews. To them, the, the temple, the temple complex, it was uh, a fortress, if you will, impenetrable. It was, it was untouchable. And to think that it would be utterly destroyed, and of course we know history fulfills that, in just a mere 30, 40 years when the Roman army would come in and, and ransack the whole city of Jerusalem, breaking down its walls and destroying the temple. To which Jesus' disciples come to him in verse 3, you remember, they ask two questions. They come to Him privately. This is not a multitude teaching. This is Jesus' twelve disciples privately coming to Him and saying two things in, in verse 3. They, they said, tell us when will these things happen? When, when will this be? When, when will the temple be destroyed? When will the city be destroyed as you're describing? But then they also ask on the heels of that question. And what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus has been talking all along that He's going to be leaving them. He's even told them He would be, he would be killed. He would be crucified, arrested and, and, and tried and, and crucified. And he's, he's been preparing them for His exit. And they're thinking He's coming right back. He's just going to go for a little bit. He'll be coming right back. So Lord, what are the signs? Because when you come, we know that you're going to establish your kingdom. And that means that we'll have a rightful place of power and position and prominence. So just give us a clue, Lord, when it's going to happen. Because it's surely going to happen real soon. And so then Jesus answers in verse 4. He describes to His disciples... These situations. He says in verse 4, He answers and says to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's important to remember. Even when you see these things, He's saying, the end 
the coming, the second coming of Christ, the judgment upon the world, it's not yet. Don't be deceived. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows, or in some translations, literally, birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Talking about the church, singing about the church. The hope of the church. The future of the church rests not in the church itself. Not in our good deeds, not in our institution, not in our our programs, not in our personality. It's not in our hope, our only hope. And make no mistake about it, the church will persevere to the end. It will be here in the end time. A lot won't be, but the church the body of Christ, true, genuine believers will be, and the only reason that we will be is because of that one hope, and He is Jesus Christ. He has promised us that. In verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then, Jesus says, you will see the second coming of the Son of Man. You will see the end of time as you know it. Now it's interesting, Jesus teaches and preaches from two perspectives. He's saying to His disciples, that group that's with Him right there, you will see these situations occur. And they have. You go back through that list of things that we've just, Jesus just enumerated there. Everything from, from earthquakes to famines to pestilences to false teachers, false prophets, uh, the falling away of believers, uh, uh, superficial believers in the church, uh, and, and all of that. You, you've seen it occur. So, in some ways, Jesus is saying to His disciples, these are things that the church age, and we are living in the church age. We're living in an age of grace. The next prophetic event to occur on God's timetable, you won't have a sign. You won't have a warning. It will occur in the twinkle of an eye, the Bible says, at the, the shout of the archangel, at the trumpet sound, the church will be raptured from, from this world. God will call forth the body of Christ and we will be removed from the presence of the world. That's the next thing to occur. Now, I, I say this, and let me offer this footnote, and I mean it with all my heart. I'm not a prophecy guru. I'm not a scholar on biblical prophecy. Please understand that. There are those who are much wiser and smarter and intelligent in the, the, the prophecies of the Bible. But I, I love prophecy. I enjoy reading prophecy. I enjoy reading about prophecy. I'm intrigued by it. And let me just say, also, I, I think I gave this, this disclaimer in, in my previous message. There are very scholarly, respectable men <clears throat> who study the Word of God and, and love the Word of God as much as, if not more than I do, and, and they may interpret prophecy differently than I do. So it's not set in concrete. But this is the way that I 
feel the Lord leading me to share with you because this is the conviction of my heart. And so when the church is removed, that will be the next thing to occur on the, on the timeline of God's prophetic calendar, if you will, for the, for the church. <clears throat> what Jesus is describing here are situations that will occur in the world on a, on a minor, a milder degree. I would like to use, if I could, ladies, and please pardon my ignorance because I'm not an expert in this either when it talks about birth and babies, okay? I've already said that. You, you might think of the way that Jesus is describing these signs, these situations are false labor during the church age. They, they occur. We see that. We see pestilence. We see earthquakes. We, we see false prophets and, and, and false Christ come on the scene. So, so these are just false labor that the church age will experience. But during the tribulation, after the church is removed, now let me just remind you, what does it mean? Just imagine when every genuine, spirit-filled, and I emphasize genuine because there are a lot of people walking around in the world today who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I had an experience, oh, I can't remember, but I, I, I'm a Christian. There are a lot of people whose names are on church rolls. But I submit to you today that they are not authentic Christians. They're not genuine believers. How do I know that? Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7, 21. You remember? We looked at that. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody who calls themselves Christians are true believers. But just imagine though, when all the true believers, sincere, blood washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are filled by the Spirit of God, they represent Christ in this world. Just imagine all of a sudden, as the Scripture describes, the church is immediately in the twinkling of an eye whisk out of this world, up into there, to meet the Lord in the clouds with those who've gone ahead of us, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What kind of a world will this be? You think this world is evil now? You think this world is corrupt now? Do you think sin runs rampant now? Do you think the devil is having a heyday now? You wait until the presence of the body of Christ is removed. And that's where we start looking at these very signs in a different way. Because then, these same type of situations will occur, but they will occur with greater intensity. They will occur with greater frequency. It will be the difference between false labor and the real deal, ladies. And you know what I'm talking about there. Because when those labor pains are, are true and it's the real thing and that baby is coming, oh, listen, they're intense and they're coming faster and, and, and yet they are productive. Jesus is preparing a generation of believers for a terrible, terrible time called the tribulation. This is not the first time that God's people have heard, has, has heard this prediction of a terrible day known as the day of the Lord. 
Let me take you back into the Old Testament briefly, just to share with you a couple of places in the prophet Jeremiah, for instance. In Jeremiah chapter 30, listen as he is speaking prophetically. This, this is the Lord, for thus says the Lord, verse 5, Jeremiah 30, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice trembling, a fear, and, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man, now you have to visualize what Jeremiah, the Lord is saying through Jeremiah. You've got to see it. He says, whether a man is either ever in labor with a child. So, so why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, all and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall not, but he shall be saved. Speaking of the, the people of God. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord God and David their king, whom I will raise up. God is saying, there is coming a day where there will be such trouble, there will be such cataclysmic disaster, there will be such great pain and agony and trouble that you will see grown men doubled over everywhere. The, the weight of the awfulness of the time will be so bad that you will see men doubled over in agony and in desperation and in hopelessness as if they were in labor and their faces will depict the total loss of hope. It will be so awful. In Daniel's book of prophecy in chapter 12, Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Daniel says at that time, Michael shall stand up, Michael being the archangel, guardian of the people of Israel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel is saying just what the Lord is saying and other prophets are saying, there is coming a day of great tribulation like nothing the world has ever experienced never will experience ever again. Go back and try to picture the worst times in our nation. The Civil War or Pearl Harbor or any of the other awful times, the, the Great Depression. Just try to picture a terrible time. And, and, and the Word of God is saying the time that is coming is far greater than the worst of times that man has ever experienced on the face of the earth. So Jesus 
is speaking to his disciples, knowing that his disciples are going to be recording his words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in one sense, is speaking to Peter and to Matthew and to James and to John. But I submit to you that our omniscient Lord is looking beyond these men. He's looking beyond that time period. He's writing to a group of individual believers that will come on the scene. In chapter 24, when he's given these things, look at verse 15, chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus says, Therefore, when you... And I want you to stop and think here for a second. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to his disciples particularly. He's not talking to you and me. He's talking to those believers who will be on this earth at the time of the tribulation. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we'll talk about that in a little bit, standing in the holy place, and look, Matthew adds a footnote. As if he's looking himself. Matthew senses the Lord's not talking to us. He's he's having us to record timeless words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God for a generation to come. And we've got it. And should the rapture occur today, and it can, or tomorrow, and those of us who are true believers in Jesus Christ are instantly taken out of this world, there'd be a whole lot of Bibles left. And somebody thinking, you know, I remember reading something or hearing that preacher over at Cornerstone or on radio, John Hagee. I remember them talking about where Jesus said something. And so they're going to go find the Bible. They're going to find their way over to Matthew. By the direction of the Lord, maybe, they will find themselves at chapter 24 and they will see that footnote in verse 15 where Matthew is saying to them, Those who are left behind. He says, whoever reads this. Have you ever thought about maybe you participate in a time capsule where you put things, trinkets or things that speak of the era, you know, write a note and you put it in there and seal it and you say, somewhere down the road in time, a generation from now, somebody's going to find this, they're going to open it up, they're going to read it. And it's it's going to sound neat to have somebody from a previous generation speaking to somebody later. This is what Matthew's saying. He says, whoever gets this, if you're alive during the tribulation, read this. Read what Christ said that I'm writing to you during the time that you find yourself. If you look around and you notice that you're missing a whole lot of family members and you're missing a lot of friends who happen to be dedicated church-going Christians and they're suddenly disappeared, then Matthew says, read it and understand because this is to you. And what you see there in verse 15 is the unveiling of the Antichrist. Jesus is talking about, therefore, when you, whoever is here during the tribulation, when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he says, as the kids will say, what woe. 
in Daniel, and I'll have to take you back because what Jesus is saying is in fulfillment of a prophecy given by these great men of God who were given the gift of prophecy by God to be able to speak. In chapter 7, to help you to understand, Daniel had a vision while he was in captivity in Babylon. You remember, Daniel had a vision. And I can't, I'm not going to take time to read through all of this, but I want to kind of summarize it and get you to the point that you need to see. In that vision, Daniel saw beasts coming up. And, and, and in verse 3, the first of the beasts that came up from the sea, uh, Daniel described looking like a lion. It was, it was, there was the empire of Babylon. The Babylonian empire. And then the next beast in verse 5, a second beast looked like a bear. It was a Medo-Persian empire. And then the next beast to arise was, was like a leopard. And this is the Greek empire. Now, mind you, the Greek empire, the Medo-Persian empire, Greek empire, the Roman empire, the next beast, all future. Daniel doesn't know anything about these empires, but God is revealing in this vision. He says there will be empires, great empires, that will rise. And in verse 7 he says, And after this I saw, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Speaking of the Roman Empire. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns, representing a confederation of power. I was considering, I was considering the horns and, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so later in chapter seven of Daniel, if you go over to verse 19, Daniel is inquiring, what is the interpretation of this? He says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the other beasts or others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth and iron and its nails of, uh, of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, speaking of the Roman Empire and their great power and their, their military prowess. And in verse 20, and about the ten horns that were on its head and about the other horn, Daniel is curious. He, he says, I want to know about that, that, that other horn that rose up out of that last beast and conservative scholars in prophecy tell us that this is the antichrist as you read further it says before which three fell namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints who prevailed against them and if you go down to verse 24, it says the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So Daniel is looking futuristically into the future, even beyond where we are right now, because what he's describing is a future confederation of the old or a resurrection of the old Roman Empire, a European confederation of nations that will come together and in the midst of them will be a ruler like the world has never seen. He has eyes like human. He has words. He speaks pompously. He is a human being, but he is given great power. And look in verse 24, it says, And he shall subdue three kings, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time, three and a half years. Daniel describes in chapter 9, 
in verse 25 in Daniel chapter 9 verse go back to chapter 24 so we know that there is going to emerge a great leader he is a pompous he is a very arrogant he is a very powerful leader who will come on the scene in the last days in chapter 9 24 and I'm just giving a quick summary here folks in chapter Chapter 9, verse 24, Daniel describes 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. And then he goes on and describes in that. He says, know, look at verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild the Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks Daniel is describing by the inspiration of God what we know as a uh, uh, 70 weeks of years so a time period of over uh, about 490 years the only thing is 69 weeks of that of that time period down to the time that Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem as the Messiah in His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that, that, that accumulates the 69 weeks. And He's cut off, the Bible says. He's cut off, that means He's crucified, and the time stops. Doesn't, doesn't resume until the church is raptured. And so, what you see at this time is Daniel is describing the last of the weeks, the 70th week, if you will. This last period of seven years. And then we know it as the tribulation period. And in verse 27 he says, And he shall, speaking of the, of the Antichrist now, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week, in other words, these are years, seven years, in the middle of that seven-year time period, there's going to be a great change. The Antichrist will come on the scene at the very, after the rapture of the church. He will come on the scene. He will be a man of peace. He will be a man of great charisma. He will be a man who will speak peace in the midst of all the turmoil that's going on in the world. He will convince the nation of Israel that he is their best friend. He'll probably help them reconstruct the temple. He'll help let them allow, allow them as, as a, a people of God to begin to, to uh, practice the sacrifices again. Oh, he will appear to be the best thing that has happened to the nation of Israel. But the scripture tells us right here that in the middle of that time period, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined. This is what Jesus is talking about when you go back over to Matthew chapter 24, there in verse 15. He's saying there will be a sign that you look for. If you're alive and you're on this earth during the time of the tribulation, one of the things you want to make sure if you hear about or watch on national television and they show this great leader for the past three and a half years has been talking peace and been such a friend of Israel, certainly suddenly taking a 180 degree turn and now he's become one of their greatest enemies. And he sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped by God. Now, some historians look at this and rightfully, they say, well, you know what? There was a fulfillment of that passage. 
There was an abomination of desolation that occurred somewhere between 175 and 165 B.C. Before Jesus, 165 years before Jesus came on the scene. There was a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus IV, or rather known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He hated Jews. And yet he was given rule over that region. He hated the Jews. He came into Jerusalem and he, he stopped all the sacrifices. He slaughtered countless thousands of Jewish men. He sold the Jewish women and children into slavery. He went into the temple. You know how the Jews, Orthodox as they are, in their dietary restrictions. Of all things, he sacrificed a pig, which is considered the most unclean of all the animals. Sorry, little Richard. But, But he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the holy place of God. And then, to make matters worse, he made the priest drink the blood of the pig. Then he set up an idol to the pagan God, Zeus, there in the very temple of God. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas, Maccabeus, and the others. They revolted. we got to get rid of this guy. So some people will look at history and say, you know what? That's what Jesus is talking about. That, that's the abomination of desolation. Oh, no, it's not. It is a mild, symbolic representation of, of the abomination of desolation. What Jesus is talking about is what the Scripture describes when the Antichrist, in Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist comes on the scene and he is, he's, he's turned on the Jews at this time. And, and if you'll look in chapter 13, and this is John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given this great vision of God. And he says, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous, blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, like his feet were like the feet of the bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, dragon is Satan. And look at the role that Satan has in the, the, the person of the Antichrist. He says, and, and the dragon gave him, who? The Antichrist. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Just as Jesus Christ is the incarnation of holy God, you have the incarnation of Satan walking on the face of the earth. Satan empowers this one man with his own power, with his own authority. He is in flesh. Satan walking on the face of the earth. He has all the power of the devil. All the evil and maliciousness of the devil is in him. In verse 3, I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. So even false signs to, to try to substantiate him and to elevate him. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now look at verse 4. So they worshiped the dragon, Satan who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and and given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years, the last half of the seven years. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you see what Daniel, or what John's describing this Antichrist to be? He is the most powerful, most charismatic, the most uh, shrewd leader to ever 
rule the earth. And he does. He rules every tribe, nation, and every, every continent. He's got all power under his possession. And Jesus says, when you see, this happens during the great tribulation. Jesus says to those who are there, whether they be Jew or Gentile, he says, if you see, this great, this is the great abomination of desolation. It wasn't Antiochus Epiphanes. It is the Antichrist when he elevates himself. Antiochus Epiphanes simply elevated a false pagan god. And the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation will elevate himself to the point that everybody will worship him. And this is what Jesus is talking about when you go back to Matthew chapter 24 verse 15. Now we can move on. Because I want you to see quickly the warning to end time believers. This is a horrible time. This is a diabolical time. And Jesus is saying to those who remain. Look at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. That's, that's hard for some of us to relate to because you don't go up on the top of your house to relax, do you? Well, I, I don't think so. You may go, we used to go up there to adjust that big old antenna that we had back in the day of antennas and rabbit ears. But you see, back in that culture, they had flat roofs and people oftentimes in the cool of the evening would go up on the roof and they would relax and they had chairs and lounges and it was just a nice place to, kind of like you would do a patio, but it was up on, and Jesus is saying, listen to the urgency in the, in the Lord's voice as he's talking about how the people of God are going to be targeted. Listen, if you are a Jew, too bad. Think about it. For centuries, all the hatred that Satan has mustered up towards God, all the anger that he has, all the revenge that he's had, oh, if any creature hates God, it's Satan. And Satan hates anybody that represents God. That would be the Jews. That would be Christians. And Jesus understands this. And He's writing through Matthew. He's passing along a prophetic message. He said, if you happen to be here in that time period, you see the abomination of desolation take place. He says, you run for the hills. Literally. If you're in Judea, if you're anywhere in the proximity of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus says, run! Run! Don't sit around and wait to see how CNN is going to analyze what the Antichrist is doing. Don't wait to wait for the next publication to come out on the, on the, 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 the plots and positions of the Antichrist. He says, run! He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not even come down to take anything. Just run, jump and run. He says, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Sometimes farmers, and we did that, start out in the cool of the morning. You might have a light jacket or a light shirt on that you put on. And as the day gets warmer, you take it off and lay it at the end of the row or the field. And, and go on working through the heat of the day. Jesus says, if you happen to be out in the field, you hear this has happened. He said, don't go back. Don't even turn back to get your coat. Run! You are marked. You are a target. I notice the compassion that Jesus shows in verse 19. And I'm sure that our young mothers could appreciate this. 
But Jesus has great compassion and concern. He says, but, ho, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days because He knows this will slow you down. You can't run. You can't flee when you're eight, nine months pregnant. You can't run for your life if you've got a, a nursing baby that you're trying to attend. These will be people that will be caught in the snare. Not only that, he says, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter so that the weather would hinder you or on the Sabbath if you happen to be an Orthodox Jew and you know how the Jewish laws require that you can go but so far from your home on the Sabbath. He says, and you'll probably be criticized. People will be throwing rocks at you because you're going farther from your house than you're supposed to. He says, whatever, run. I think it's interesting that Paul picks up on this very theme in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Paul saw, through the vision of prophecy, Paul saw this man coming on the scene. And in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, speaking of this day, the day of tribulation, that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, Antichrist, is revealed. The son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, and showing himself that he is God. Jesus is warning the people through the writings of Matthew. And it's interesting this, the, the urgency with which he's telling people when you see this occur. Now, if you're here today and Jesus Christ is truly your Lord and His Spirit lives in your heart, this is interesting, but it's nothing for you to fear. I have no anxiety about the end of time. I look forward to the end of time. I look forward to the day of the Lord because I realize Jesus is coming again. He will bring judgment upon sin and rebellion against God, but He will establish His kingdom on this earth and we who believe will be with Him for eternity. So there's nothing for the Christian to fear, but I'll tell you where it troubles my heart. I have family members, some of them who speak the name of Jesus, but I know from the fruit of their lives... All indications, He's not their Lord. I have friends that I've witnessed to who continually make excuses and reject Jesus Christ. They just don't buy into this religion thing. They don't sense the conviction of the Spirit of God helping them to understand that they're sinners and they need Christ. These are the ones that break my heart. Should the rapture occur this evening, they will call my home. They'll get the voicemail. They'll call my cell phone. They'll get the voicemail. They'll come to my house. They'll come back the next day. They'll file a missing persons report. First on Jan and then on me. But they won't be alone. They won't be alone because suddenly they'll realize, but wait a minute, there's reports all over Wahlberg. There's reports all over Winston-Salem. There's reports all over North Carolina. Look, uh, on the news... CNN, they'll be on the air. Uh, you know, uh, you know that, that, that all these people are gone. Airplanes were crashing because suddenly the pilots were gone. 
Cars mangled on the interstate because mysteriously drivers were just whisked away. We don't know where. They just disappeared. We've got millions of Americans who are gone. And then as the book of Revelation describes, then things will begin to happen. Awful things. Awful things. Those people that I love that don't share my faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and will face the tribulation time, they will face wars like the world has never known wars. They will face famines. The Bible says they will see starvation at a level that we've not seen rampant across the world. Even the Bible says wild beasts will be killing people. Listen, I thought it was interesting. Jan and I was just innocently sitting there watching one of these animal nature shows. And, and they said that the grizzly bear population has increased two-thirds. There are more grizzly bears on the, on the, on, out there in the wilderness than there's ever been. Back in my hometown, up in, in, over here in Clemens, there are bears, there are coyotes. Listen, the Bible says humans will be hunted down in the tribulation time and killed by wild beasts. But that's just, that's a picnic compared to what? The Bible says during that time period, these people that I love that don't know Jesus will see earthquakes like the world has never seen. Islands will literally disappear. Mountains will be shifted. Geographical locations will be reconfigured because of the the seismic activity of these great earthquakes. There will be cosmic disturbances in the clouds and the skies that the world, NASA, has never dreamed of happening. There will be an appearance of stars falling from the skies. It will be meteorites. There will be meteorites crashing into this earth. One third of the vegetation of the world, the Bible says, will be utterly destroyed. There will be a a meteorite the size of a mountain. It will crash into the sea and in doing so, it will kill a third of the living creatures in the sea and it will destroy a third of the ocean-bearing ships out out to sea. Meteors will crash into the fresh water supplies of the world and a third of the fresh water will be poisoned. And listen, that's nothing compared to when hell begins to release these diabolical locusts that the Bible describes in Revelation like the world has never seen. These will be creatures that will emerge out of the, the bottomless pit. They will have a venom that, that man has never experienced. It will inject, they will inject their venom into people. It will be such an incurable, agonizing, unquenchable, agonizing pain that nobody can get relief from. There will be people walking around asking you to kill them. They will look for ways to die themselves because of the actual physical torment. All of this will be taking place while this diabolical Satan-filled leader begins to exercise his iron-fisted rule over the world. But isn't it interesting that in the midst of all of this, verse 21, Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No nor ever shall be. But don't miss, and we're going to close on verse 22. Don't miss verse 22. Don't miss verse 22. He said, but God, He's so mean. Do all these terrible, awful things to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget that from the dawning of history, God has given man the opportunity to live in a perfect environment which man sinned against God rejected. And so man lived under the curse of sin. For generations, for centuries, God has provided a way whereby man can be restored in his relationship with God and to avoid the wrath of God. 
The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the penalty of sin is death. Listen, God hates sin. If you're walking around with unconfessed sin and you are an unbeliever, you have a big target on your chest and the laser of God's wrath is aimed at you. You will endure the wrath of God. This world is due to, to be subjected to the just wrath of God on this day. And Jesus said it will be like nothing the world has ever seen nor will it ever experience. God is simply being just. He's simply doing what a holy God does to those who have rebelled against Him, rejected Him, and scoffed Him, and killed His Son, and tortured His believers. But look at verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, at the pace of all of this kept up, the earthquakes, the meteors crashing, the diseases, the pestilence, the locusts, and all of this. If all of this kept up, every human being on the face of the earth would be destroyed. He says, unless these days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake. Isn't it amazing? That in the midst, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all this catastrophe and cataclysmic disasters and pain and, and, and dis- all of this. In the, isn't it amazing that there will be people getting saved? God will seal a third of the nation of Israel. They will be preserved. They will turn. They will see when the Antichrist turns on them that they have put their confidence in the wrong direction and they will turn to God. The other two-thirds of the Jews will be destroyed. In a holocaust that will make Hitler's holocaust seem like a day in the park. But those who remain, God has sealed and God will save. There will be people that will be influenced by the witness of these evangelistic Jews that will be brought. There will be people who will be saved. God shortens the time for them, for their sake. And for the sake of a wicked and sinful humanity. In the midst of God's wrath, we see His unending mercy. I think about Lamentations 3.22, where it talks about because of God's faithful love, we do not perish. His mercies never end. They are new morning by morning. Isn't that amazing? Even during the time of the Great Tribulation, God doesn't break that promise. Believers who wake up on the morning of the great tribulation will see the mercy of God. Even as God is bringing just wrath upon the world and judgment upon the world, the world will experience one last gesture of God's wrath, uh, or God's mercy. Jesus is given a warning to a generation that you and I may not even know. But then again, they may be tomorrow. They may be next week. You know what I would encourage you to do? Even for, for friends and neighbors and, and people that don't even profess, that want anything to do with God. I would be merciful. I would go to them and I would bookmark these words 
and said, listen, I know you're scoffing at what I believe now, and I know you don't think it's right and true and all that, and I know you don't, you choose not to believe, but, but, but I love you so much that I won't want to dare leave you in the dark. When this happens, when this happens, if you're still around, please, please, turn to the chapters that I have marked and read them and know that these are the times in which you find yourself. At least know what lies ahead for you. That's the merciful thing to do. The faithful thing for us to do now, church, is don't sit back on your laurels and say, oh, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have to go through that terrible time of tribulation. I won't have to face the Antichrist. No, you won't. But you know, the Christian thing to do and the obedient thing to do is to continue to tell as many people as you know. Tell them about Jesus. Share the Gospel with them. That's an act of love. At least give them the opportunity to decide whether they choose to accept Christ or not. And then when you get into eternity, as Paul says in Acts 20.26, you won't have any blood of people that you didn't tell about Christ on your hands. You'll have a peace of knowing at least, at least you gave them an opportunity to choose Him by faith. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, I, I am so absolutely humble by the magnitude of these words. And Father, I pray that You will forgive me for semblances of pride in the past where I've maybe gone around thinking that, that I was better than other people because I'm in. That's not, the, that's not the mindset of a Christian. That's not the mindset of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's certainly not the mind of my Savior. Lord, I pray that You will intensify my sincere efforts to tell those who don't know about Jesus the truth of the Gospel. I don't want to pressure anybody, Lord, or browbeat them. All I want to do is just simply tell them the truth and love on them in Christ. Because, Lord, nobody comes to You except You choose them. And I pray that You draw many to know You by faith and to be spared of this horrific time that awaits the world. And so, Lord, we just thank You for giving us the opportunity to know You. And we pray that You'll continue to use us to help others to come to Christ, that they may share in the blessings of heaven one day with us. Lord, we thank You. Use this message, I pray, in any way You choose. Speak to our hearts now. Help Christians, non-Christians, help everyone here today to simply decide how should I respond to what God has said to me through the Word today. And we trust the results to You, Lord. And we thank You and we praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen.